0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, uh, so you got verses, and you'll probably notice in your verse, uh, the verse part of your packet, there's quite a few of them. I don't know that we'll get to them all. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure we will not. Um, but you'll notice that a lot of them come from Luke chapter 1. So we're, we're really, really concerned. And so we're, we've kind of set up over the last couple of weeks who Jesus is, who we know, uh, we know going into the New Testament. We kind of, spoiler alert, sort of know a little bit about him and why those things are necessary. And we're going to try, obviously, over the next however long we're in the New Testament, which is going to be a long time, Unpack more of that as we grow in our understanding of that. But just as a precursor, we've talked about Jesus being the Son of God and what that meant. We did that, we've done that, we have done that for two weeks, and then we talked about last week him being uh, not just the Son of God but also the Son of Man and what those what those terms actually relate to and what they mean. That's not the last time you'll hear it. I don't think it was the first time most of you have heard those things from me about Son of Man and things like that. But it certainly won't be the last time. Those are those are issues that uh, I try as much as I can to just keep coming back to, because they're tremendously important for us to develop our own thinking biblically of how we can actually look at the pages from Genesis to Revelation and make sense of a story that's taking place. A, a one consistent narrative uh, told by 40-plus men over three continents writing in Three different languages. Uh, so if you can imagine that about the Bible, that's one thing that biblical theology does is we can kind of look at the consistency in the story across many, many years and by many different hands, and they're, they're telling the same story. And I think it's helpful just biblically to be able to think that way, and so that won't be the last time we, we come to that. We're going to do a little bit more of that tonight as we, uh, as we think about the birth of of not just Jesus, we're only going to touch on that briefly, but more the birth of John the Baptist, which is you know not necessarily a birth story that you really think too much about, but it's actually incredibly significant in the biblical story. But um, last week, what we talked about was John, that is the author of the Gospel John, different than John the Baptist, John the, the author, uh, more clearly than any other Gospel writer, is able to look... Uh, both ways at Israel's history and their future and kind of know what Jesus is doing, uh, if you want to say like horizontally or laterally or to us, you know, he's a king, he is uh, king of the Jews, that kind of thing, he is Israel, all of those things, but then he's also able to look up and see that Jesus is and depict Jesus as the one come from heaven sent by the Father to do the Father's will. Unlike any other gospel, John just sort of lays it out there really clearly that this person that has come to us, named Jesus, is straight from heaven. He is the Son of God. He was with God when all things were created. He is God in the flesh. Come to live amongst us. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. So, in a a way that the other gospel writers may not necessarily address altogether, they touch on it, but they don't necessarily make it as a po- uh, poignant argument as John does, maybe, on this particular fact that Jesus is both God and man, and he's adamant about that, and it's part and parcel of what it means to be saved, is to believe that. But, um, so combining all what we've talked about over the last few weeks, all that is meant in the Gospels that Jesus is the Son of God is to say then that Jesus is truly God, that He's taking on he's taken on flesh to rule God's kingdom because humanity was ensnared by sin and was incapable of fulfilling God's commands to bear His image and rule on His behalf. So He has done that as someone who The only one that can do it is someone who is fully God. He's the only one that is capable of actually delivering that. But, in order to do it, in order to actually perform that function, he also has to be truly man. He can't be uh, only one or only the other, or any less a degree of one or the other. As truly man, he has fulfilled the role of Son of God in Adam, Israel, David, and he's represented God perfectly in righteousness as God's true king. So, I, I think that is, to me, probably the, the most, I know that that is a long sort of paragraph, but if you're going to summarize four Gospels, it, you're probably not going to be able to do it in just a few words, okay? So if I were to put the kind of point on, on the com- combination of what those four Gospels are really doing and trying to present to us, it'd probably be something like that, right? Is, is this is who Jesus is, and this is what they're claiming he is. And we're going to have to walk through the setup of Jesus, you know, through the entire New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and kind of spell it out a little bit more and show a little bit more of that. But, I mean, that's essentially what they're claiming. And what they want readers to, to know going in is that this is what we're going to show you, you know. So it's a big claim, is the point, right, of this is what Jesus is, is going to do. Um, so we're going to focus on the Gospel of Luke because... The Gospel of Luke, I mean, John starts before there was time, all right? So, that's kind of unfair. He technically starts at the beginning. But Luke starts further back than any of the ones talking about earthly stuff, right? So, uh, Luke goes really far back into the infancy of John and, and uh, or the, maybe you want to say neonatal or prenatal, um, John and Jesus. And so, the Gospel of Luke opens with this parallel foretelling of the births of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. So if you think about it, you know, the other Gospels just begin, There's there was a man named John and he came preaching. You know, pretty much. Not pretty much, that's what they do. Um, and whether it's John 1 or uh, Matthew 3, uh, he appears on the scene, Mark pretty much starts with John preaching. In mark one but luke actually goes back to the foretelling that john is going to be born and talks about all the things leading up to john's birth which is not necessarily a story that we often think about that much but is incredibly significant to the biblical story now the, the historically where these occur in the timeline of human history somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Now, it seems very odd that Jesus would be bef- born in the before Christ era, doesn't it? He was, he was born six years before Christ. Jesus was. Uh, well, John is going to say he's always been, so, you know, there you go. Uh, he kind of trumps you on that one. Um, but <coughs> the reason that we know that is because both of the births of John and Jesus both occurred during the rule of King Herod of Judea. And you can see in these two passages, we're not going to read them because it's relatively obvious here, that in, that both kids were born during the days of Herod. Herod dies in 4 B.C. So we know that historically. He dies in 4 B.C. So that puts the birth of Jesus before his death, quite obviously. Um, and we've talked about it and we'll revisit that Herod trying to kill the, the newborn babies in Bethlehem is entirely consistent with the person Herod was in the last about six or seven years of his life. He started to grow progressively more paranoid, crazy. Perhaps had dementia and who knows what else. But uh, but essentially we know that, and so that puts their birth somewhere between 4 BC to 6 BC, 6 BC to 4 BC, somewhere in that range. Okay. So here's how this sort of thing transpires. There was a righteous, we're told a righteous, albeit elderly priest, named Zechariah, who is serving in the temple that that Herod obviously built. And we're told that Zechariah has this elderly wife, and her name is Elizabeth, and they had no children because Elizabeth is barren. Let's let's read that. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, let's pause right there because we're going to get to the rest of it in just a second. Um, So, both of them were old. This is a common story that we've, we've seen many times in the Bible. A barren woman, both are advanced in years, prayed for a child for a long time, have given up because it's pretty much over. Biologically, it seems this is going to be impossible. So, Zechariah is offering in the temple, he's offering incense, and um, he's, he's serving in this temple, and an angel appears to him and tells him that Elizabeth, that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child, um, and that child is going to be the forerunner of the Christ. And here's how that, that happens. Let's read Luke 1, 8 to 17. Let's pick up where we left off. So, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay. So, this is a pretty significant deal. He hears, we're going to have a child. And obviously they're older, they don't know that this can happen. So, what helps to understand is that the task that he's taking on right now is, happens in a priest's life maybe once. He is old. This has very likely never happened to him before. Where he is in the temple burning incense before the Lord. He is charged for this duty. And the reason that that we know that is because, first of all, there were so many priests and there were so many divisions of priests that your division has to come up and not only does your division have to come up to perform the duties inside the, the temple, but then you, out of that group, have to have your number, your Bingo card drawn essentially, or whatever it is, lottery numbers drawn, and get the powerball in order to go in there. So, this is so you can kind of imagine just for a second if you really think about this scene here is a man who is old, has been serving as a priest for a number of years, and who has never had this task before, never done this job before. And of all the dates, that God could have shown up to him through the messenger Gabriel and spoke to him, he chose this time to do it. The most important task Zechariah has ever been appointed to do, God waited until that moment to say, let's have some fun. (laughs) Let's let's give him the message now, right? Right? Uh, nothing else is on his mind, so it's it's an important task that he's taking. So you can see, you can almost see in the story where Zechariah has a little bit of apprehension about what is happening here, what is going on. Uh, obviously, this is a, a big a big time. Okay, so in addition to the significance of what the angel tells him, you. And your wife are going to have a child, this is like Abraham level stuff, right? This is, this, how many times have you ever seen a, I don't know how old she is, but let's say, 75 year old woman get pregnant? You've never seen it, right? Only in the Bible. And the only time it happens in the Bible is you probably know of all the times. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, all the times it's ever probably happened in human history. You, you probably have seen them there in the Scriptures. And here it is, being told to him, here's an angel telling him it's going to be... So, what is Zechariah thinking at this moment? Like, am I Abraham? You know, I mean, right? Like, the, this is that, that kind of level stuff. So, this is a big thing. So, in addition to the, the message itself... The angel tells him about the child, and there's really a couple of things that are are super important to remember. And I think that Luke is drawing our attention to that we have to kind of put in our mind, because I think it's helpful to understand what is happening here. First, he says that the child will be filled with the Spirit of God from the womb. So if you look at verse 15, he says... For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not uh, drink wine or strong drink. That's a vow, a Nazarite vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it say? Even from his mother's womb. Just hold on to that. Okay? Tuck it in there. Right on the back of your eyelids. What do you got to do? Just remind yourself. Okay, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Which is a particularly odd thing to say for an angel to kind of say like even while he's even while he's in utero he's going to be filled with the spirit. Okay. That seems like an important detail for some reason because it stands out as kind of weird. Okay. So that's kind of significant. But then this also explains what the reason that I think that's significant is because it explains not only that John is going to have a divine direction, that God is going to commission him and he's going to be with him and he's going, to, he's going to point him in the right way, if you want to say it that way. He's going to guide him. He's going to have a divine direction. John the Baptist is not only going to have a divine direction um, to his ministry, but also it explains the reaction he gives when he hears the voice of Mary. There is a baby in Elizabeth's womb that reacts to the arrival of the Messiah on the scene. So, you're familiar with that part. I think you probably heard that. And maybe you've heard the part where he tells Zechariah he's going to be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. Maybe you paid attention to that, maybe you didn't. But I think the two are connected. It's Luke's way of helping you see that John the Baptist is a herald of Jesus before he was even born he's a herald this is god weaving this supernaturally into his dna it is the very basis on which he's conceived it's the reason he's born right is to to do this so let's look at what happens here okay there's more to it even than just this but in those days mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a, town of, to, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Pay really close attention, okay? And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, just kind of take all that in for just a minute, and we're going to come back to it in just a second. So that's the first thing is that it, it marks John out with a divine direction, and it explains why L- Luke draws our attention to that, that the baby leaped in her womb, and he's explaining it's because he was filled with the Spirit. Okay. Second, I think it's helpful to remember, in addition to the, mes- the message that they're going to have a child, that there's s- another bit of significance here, that this child will perform his ministry, he says specifically, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, it seems kind of maybe a, maybe a weird statement to some. It may seem like a little, you know, like I said last week, there are no throwaways in the Bible. We may not be able to explain them. We may not be able to know why some of those sentences were written. That's a whole different issue. But there's no throwaways. Everything's written with intention. And so, it it should stand out to us what does he mean it's gonna, he's going he's going to be he's going to perform his ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah and it's there in, in verse 16 and uh, really in verse 17 he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers things like this so the angel what the angel is doing here in this message he's careful to identify John as the one that was promised at the close of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. The language that he uses to describe John's ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah who will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers' children comes straight out of the book of, of Malachi. In fact, that statement is how the Old Testament ends with a promise. And then, remember... There has been, as we've talked about over the last several months, 400 years of silence after that promise in Malachi. Done. God just sort of zip, and no more messages. No more prophets, no more nobody, and there's a whole bunch of history that happened, and a whole bunch of tragedy, and a whole bunch of all kinds of wars and things like that in that area, and nothing no prophet to come along and say, this is why you're in the middle of war or anything like that. It's all been silent. And when Gabriel shows up on the scene there in the temple and he talks to Zechariah, the message that he gives is, remember the Old Testament? We're coming back to that. It's, we're, ba- we're back in it now. Okay, He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So let's look at Malachi 4, 5, and 6, and you'll, maybe you'll hear this. Behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who is he sending? Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this is going to be your saving grace. Lest I destroy the whole place, this is going to be your saving grace. I'm going to send you Elijah. When Gabriel shows up, now there's still still a thought out here in the celebration of the Passover, even, that Elijah is going to show up at the table to introduce the ministry of the Messiah to this day. Okay, there's a lot of atheists that are Jews. Okay, so let's set them aside for just a second, and let's talk about Jews that may actually believe this or at least participate in all the traditions of the Jews, okay? Still to this day, when they celebrate the Passover, they'll traditionally leave the door open, traditionally leave a seat open at the table, traditionally leave a glass of wine, four, four glasses actually, it's quite a wine-drinking extravaganza, Passover is, but uh, one there will be one glass of wine left there that is Elijah's cup, and it will sit there at the table, there are a lot of connections to Elijah, and the, the invitation is that Elijah could walk in that door at any Passover and sit down and drink the cup, right? And you may have, have heard somebody say, this is a cup that is my blood, you know, right? So, significant, right, what, what Jesus is doing at the Passover. But the point is, there's Elijah's cup that's left there. So, they are leaving open the possibility that Elijah himself will come back. So what is Gabriel doing when he shows up in the temple and says, he will be the one in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will do his ministry and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. What is he doing? He's saying, remember what we talked about in Malachi? This is the guy. It's not actually Elijah. It's someone operating in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what that means is someone who... Like Elijah does, takes his face and hardens it against the winds of the culture and preaches into it. Right. So he remember Elijah preaching to Ahab, and Jezebel is threatening to kill him, and you know everybody around him and stuff like that. And he's he's standing there and he's preaching faithfully what God would say and executing even the prophets of Baal. So. That's the way John the Baptist is going to be. You may remember a scenario that's coming in the future where John the Baptist will do exactly that to his own Ahab, and his own Ahab will cut his head off, right? Will actually kill him. So he's going to operate in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. But wait, there's more. (laughs) He... He is also, that means then, that He is the, not only the fulfillment of this prophecy, but His coming into the world inaugurates the day of the Lord that was promised in many of the prophetic writings. Okay? Remember what He says in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before what? The great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay? Before that day comes, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, I'm gonna send you Elijah. So, specifically, let's be really clear. What John is coming to do is to be a forerunner for the Messiah, to turn the hearts of the children, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And that coming of the Messiah is what Malachi calls the great and awesome day of the Lord. You tracking? Now let's read about the day of the Lord, shall we? Let's read about it. See all these passages that are here from the Old Testament? Okay? I only left out a few of them that talk about the day of the Lord because they were less than clear in terms of context I couldn't get them down to just a few verses. So they basically say the same thing, but it would take more explanation. So I just, I got the ones that are the clearest, okay? Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make a la- the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Optimistic, bright, shiny. Jeremiah forty six ten. "...that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates." Sounds hopeful. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, "...for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near." It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nation. Joel 1.15 Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Joel 2.1 Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Joel 2.11 The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel 2.31 The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Amos 5.18-20 Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned on his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? What do you, what do you think about the day of the Lord right now? <laughs> Why are you confused? They seem negative, don't they? It's not revelation, is it? Oh, Hmm. it's interesting, isn't it? Um, So you're you're seeing the conundrum that we're in right now. He says the forerunner that we now know as John the Baptist is coming to usher in the Messiah who is going to bring the day of the Lord. But when I look at the day of the Lord as it's presented everywhere it appears in the Old Testament... It is terrible. So, let me ask you this. He says back here, Woe to you who desire, in Amos 5, 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Why do they look forward to it? If that's what it is, why are they looking forward to it? Yeah. How? What's going to happen? It's re- you said revenge for their enemies. In case anybody didn't hear back there, but. Okay, here's what I want. I want us as Bible readers to hold back from some. I'm not saying all. You have revelation in your Bible. I don't want you to cut it out. Okay. I want you to not simply think of prof- prophecy in the Old Testament in terms of revelation. I- I rather, when you see these, this is the point, this is the reason I wanted to read these passages, is because Jesus came and he f- inaugurated and is fulfilling This prophecy. The day of the Lord. It started. It's already begun. Not only that, the entire rest of the New Testament is trying to tell you that that day that you're talking about when it's cut the heads off and judgment and let justice flow flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream and all of the stuff that's there in the prophets, that that's already been completed in God's mind in Christ's first coming It's already been sealed yes that is what's happening so I want you instead to think about Christ's first coming and his second coming as one big block that it's that you can't have one without the other that it's all Together, the reason that revelation can even be written is because God has sealed it, and when Jesus said, it is finished, He was talking about everything. It's all done. There is no way, there's not one way, that anybody in this world can ever rewrite the ending. They can't erase one period from it. It's already been Sealed. So, Christ appearing on the scene. John, proclaiming the message to the world about Jesus coming, is ushering in the day of the Lord. The mistake we make is thinking that the day of the Lord is one singular 24-hour period. It's not. It's an era. It's the era of the Lord. Right? Right? It all comes together. So the reason that they're excited about it is because it's going to be the the enemies are going to be of God are going to be killed. And what Amos is telling them is, you're those people. You're them. And those are the same people, those are the same types of people that will come along later in the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Roman rulers and authorities and all those people that will hear the message of Jesus and will put him to death. The same type of people. So for them, the day of the Lord is sealing their fate. You have rejected Jesus in your heart. You're never going to believe you are a child of the devil and you will never come to faith and your fate is sealed. But for the other group, The people who see the cross and believe, surely this is the Son of God, they too had the day of the Lord rain down upon them, but instead of them taking the force of God's wrath, Jesus took it. You tracking? So he's saying the day of the Lord is a day of wrath, of vengeance. And as David pointed out, the vengeance takes place on all of God's enemies, which is all of us. But the difference for us is that Christ became the enemy of God for us in our place. Are we tracking so far? So he's, he's presenting the day of the Lord as a day of wrath because that's what it is. Jesus just took that part for us. Okay. So let's move a little bit down the road. Um. So Zechariah's response to the message from the angel uh, reflects his unbelief. There shouldn't be an is there, but you get it. Reflects his unbelief in the prophecy. That's clear. He he says that. Gabriel's going to say that. And for it, he is stricken mute until the birth of John the Baptist. So Zechariah is silenced. All right. But if you're paying attention to what Zechariah asks in the temple, it sounds just like what Abraham asks. In fact, he uses near the same words that Abraham uses to the angel, which Abraham asks it to the pre-incarnate Christ. We'll talk about that some other time. Um, so Abraham asks that same, very same question. And honestly, it, it also kind of sounds like Mary's response to Gabriel. So I just read this. Look, uh, Luke 1 18 to 23. That will be on page 5. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, What? I'm Gabriel. Uh, I, so I read it anyway. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So he comes out of the temple, he's unable to speak, and people are like, what? They realize he's obviously seen something in there that is no doubt freaking him out, and he's they're kind of putting things together. But that's his response. Well, if you look at Genesis 15, 8, uh, but, he, but he, Abram said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is talking about the land. Or 1811 is more clear. Um, nope, I didn't include the quote there. Um, so let's keep going. Ma- Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? So bo- both uh, Abraham and uh, Mary at return a question to... Uh, to the, the angel to ask and they seem to not demonstrate the same lack of faith in their question asking. But I, I think there, there's also more. So it's very clear he has he, his question is demonstrating a lack of faith in his heart that this is really going to happen. Which seems odd because how many times have angels appeared to you? Right? You're probably thinking... You know none. And yeah, I get it. So if one just appeared to you and said, "Fear not, genie. I have a message for you. Don't don't fear. This is a message from the Lord." Would you would you kind of go? I, I don't know. I think I think maybe I might listen to this. <laughs> you know you'd think. So you think of all the times that you would have faith. It would be right then, maybe. Uh, but Zechariah, no. Okay. So what is it about his question that is that is particular? Well, it's obviously he's chastised for his unbelief. That's clear from the text. But, what is also uh, adds a little bit, I think, of understanding to the, the passage is that his muteness also serves as a sign. So he asks, how will I know this? How will I know this is going to be? I'll tell you how you're going to know it. You're not going to be able to talk until he's born. How about that? Right? So... It's kind of a double, there's sort of a double part to it, right? That It betrays his lack of faith, and Gabriel silences him, even though maybe Mary had some similar kind of questions, like, well, I'm a virgin, though. Like, how, how is that going to happen? Or Abraham, you know, how can I know this? I don't even have a child, and my wife's, like, really old, so how is this going to happen? And maybe they have the same kind of thing going on as Zechariah does. Zechariah is given a sign, and that sign is, well, he's not going to be able to talk. Okay? Now, uh, so that serves as a sign to everyone about the significance of the child, and we understand that, I think maybe a little bit, from Luke: 157 to 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day when they came to circumcise, they came to circumcise the child, and they, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, "No, he shall be called John." And they said to her, "None of your relatives are called this or are or called this name. What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. So what does Zechariah's muteness also do? It serves as a sign of the significance of this baby. Right? So it's not... It it is a response to his question. It's probably not the response he was looking for, (laughs) but it's the response that Gabriel gave him. Is that your question betrays a lack of faith, and I'll give you a sign. Here's going to be the sign you're not going to be able to talk. Okay? But further... Because of Zechariah's inability to speak, now follow me on this, okay? Zechariah can't talk. Elizabeth is going to go into hiding. Okay? So because of Zechariah's inability to speak, and because of Elizabeth's reclusiveness, which we read about in 24, look at that, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. So she seems very concerned that she is very old and people are going to make fun of her because look at this old lady that has a baby, right? And so what does she do? She goes into hiding for five months. Now, why is five months significant? Any idea? Any thought? Okay, good. All right, hold on to that. So, Elizabeth... So, Zechariah can't talk to anybody. Elizabeth can't talk to anybody either because she's hiding. Okay? So then, the Holy Spirit who has filled the pre-born John the Baptist, remember that? He'll be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. So, the John the Baptist that is filled with the Spirit inside his mother, and, remember it says that Elizabeth... She gets filled with the Spirit too, and she speaks to the first person she's seen in six months, which is whom? Mary. That means that the Holy Spirit, who has filled both mother and child, becomes the first one in the story to declare this is the Christ. Right? You see that? The Spirit that is indwelt... John the Baptist causes him to leap inside his mother's womb. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, now speaks to the first person she's seen in her time of reclusivity. Okay, reclusiveness. She declares the arrival of the Christ. So it's there in 39, 4-5. Mary comes in, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting in 41 of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. So the Holy Spirit becomes the first one speaking this blessing. So, this also coincides, obviously these two narratives going together in the first chapter of Luke, coincides With the miraculous incarnation of the Christ Child, and it's an act that very clearly God performs through what His Holy Spirit, without the aid of humanity in the person of Mary. So, in other words, she doesn't participate in an act that would conceive this child, which is the difference between the way the kind of the secular world crassly puts the incarnation of. of Jesus as, like, God takes a wife in Mary and that kind of, that whole, that whole thing. Most of the time they do it to make fun. I, I get that. But this is what separates the Holy Spirit, um, well, they use a very crass term for it, but having a child with Mary, right? This is why that's different, is because the very purpose of the story is to say Mary is not participating in the conception of this child in any way, Okay? And so that's there in 26 to 38. So look at this real quick. I just want to read this briefly because I, I think it, it matters. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, we'll get to him next week, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And then the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her uh, with uh, and is and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with god that's the explanation that the way that this is going to happen is a work of the holy spirit and that sounds crazy and impossible but nothing is impossible with god so it's a work that god is performing and luke is showing you that this whole process of salvation that is being brought to people is a work that god is initiating a work that god is empowering and a work that god is doing everything from the heralding of the christ coming in to the christ actually being born and and to mary actually conceiving and bearing the child all of this is a work that is done by the Holy Spirit. Now, you rewind the clocks. Go all the way back to the first several verses of Genesis. Do you remember how everything came into be? What does it say? In the beginning. God, no, that's John. You, you're, you, yeah, yeah. I got you. We were in John not that long ago. Uh huh. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And what hovers over the, over the surface of the waters? The Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters and brings about creation. What's happening here? God is doing it again. But this is new creation. And what is new creation bringing about? The day of the Lord. This is the day, the day that he's bringing in now, the day where the Lord is king over all. This is what he's inaugurating, a totally new day, a day where enemies of God are vanquished and no longer, a day where some who were his enemies become his friends. This is a whole new day. This is a day of, of new creation, and it's a day only God can do. This is a supernatural work, a work suited only for the Holy Spirit. And throughout the first chapter of Luke, he's making that known to you, that the Holy Spirit is the one doing this. He's indwelling John the Baptist. He's indwelling Mary. He's indwelling Elizabeth. He's doing the speaking. He's proclaiming the Christ. Who is the one? How does John the Baptist come to know that this is Christ is standing on the riverbanks? When he baptizes him, the Holy Spirit tells him, That's the Christ. These aren't men that are gods. These are God-indwelt men. That's the difference, right? This is God doing this work. Okay, but there's more. Hold on. So, following the birth of John, the Holy Spirit again becomes the herald of the significance of the baby. When he loosens Zechariah's tongue, to put the significance of this child into words, basically through the pro- through this prophet John the Baptist, and through the one he introduces, God is keeping His promises of deliverance of His people. Listen to how Zechariah says this, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David, as He spoke by mouth of those holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Remember the day of the Lord is coming. To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father. Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him in all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. So, Zechariah, when his mouth is loosened, and the words that he utters is, the Lord is doing this. The Lord is keeping his promise. And this is a summary of everything that comes before that. All of the things that you're reading in Luke chapter 1, is the, is the sum of it is the Lord is keeping his promises that he made in the Old Testament. But in a way that only he can do it. No man can ever fulfill this. God has to take the load of this. But, there's more. One more. You with me on this? Okay. As deeply rooted in the Holy Spirit's heralding. So the the Holy Spirit becomes the herald through the mouth of His prophets and people. As deeply rooted in the Holy Spirit's heralding as the birth stories of John and Jesus are. The Spirit's direction in the heralding of Uh, in in heralding the gospel is an ongoing reality in the life of the Christian today, okay? What is it? It didn't go, did it? Good. Ha ha. You had to listen. (laughs) You're like waiting for the, okay, turn to the next slide so I can write down the blank. In the life of the Christian today, okay, now I want you to, I want you to read this with me, okay? Look at the last, last verse here, in Luke 12, 11 to 12. Luke is the only one who describes it this way, okay? Of the gospel writers. Jesus has sent his disciples, or is sending them, and he's preparing them for the ministry that they're going to have, okay? When they go and they tell the gospel. And when they do, people are going to, like, beat them and going to arrest them and they're going to do all kinds of bad things to them on account of their preaching the gospel. Listen to what Luke says. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you shall defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You see what's happening here? It is not just the heralding of Christ coming that the Holy Spirit is empowering. He is also the one who dwells inside Christ's followers long after Christ is gone. And He is the one empowering their message. To the people. As they proclaim the gospel. To the nations. He is the one empowering. So when they get arrested. They get beaten and they get tried. And they come to that time and they say. What do you have to say for yourself? The Holy Spirit is the one. That is heralding the message of Christ. To the authorities. The principalities and the powers. The Holy Spirit is always. Will always be. Is always. Is always the one working in and through God's people to herald the message of Christ. Okay, here's why that's important. When we talk about sharing the gospel, we get nervous because I feel like I don't know enough. That we spend tons of time in Bible study. We are the most Bible-studied country that's ever Bible-studied. There are people around the world pastoring churches with less knowledge than the average person in a Southern Baptist church. Do you know that? Why? Because they know something that we refuse to believe. You will not feel prepared until you open your mouth and speak. You will not. There will not be a time when you sit in the pew and you go, okay, I have enough knowledge now to share the gospel with somebody. I think I can do it. No. Every time, every time you open your mouth, it doesn't matter the guy on YouTube that goes and that's all he does is share the gospel every single day. Every time he shares the gospel he will have that feeling in the pit of his gut that says, okay, here we go. And every time, without fail, I promise you he would be able to attest it if he was standing here himself. Every time he does. He knows that the Lord is with him as he does it. The bad interactions, good interactions, the interactions where he's yelled at, things are thrown at him, Doors are shut in his face, whatever. Even in those times, he senses that he has the words to say. Or sometimes, the words to not say. You will not feel like you ever know enough to tell somebody the truth about Jesus. Ever. Until the hour you need it. And what he means by hour is the moment that you need it. The disciples, in other words, are not going to, two days before their trial, feel like, okay, I got this. I know exactly what I'm going to say. Or they may, and then they get there, and they're like, I didn't think you were going to ask that question. It's the moment they need it. That goes for anything in ministry. You can sit there on your couch And you will never understand the Lord's provision and how He answers prayer and how He addresses the things that you need until you are there. Or until you get past it and you look back and you go, man, look at that. Everything just happened to work out. You will not understand it until you're there. No. I, I, you know, I, I... there's so, I could go on forever talking about this, and I won't. I promise. But so many, I think, so many times our churches like that's all we do. We just we just sit around and we go Bible study after Bible study. I'm, I want to teach. I will teach as long as there are people to show up. I will. I will teach. That's what I do. That's what I'm called to do. I know. But we have to tell somebody what we know. Right, And churches will so often rest on their laurels as if the objective of this whole thing is to store up a ton of knowledge and money and just bankroll it all and a successful church is the one that has tons of people packed in and is learning and all that and has their bank account as full as possible. And that's a successful church. I don't think so. I think the successful church is the one who shares and tells other people and who takes a lot of risk, honestly. Because that's the, really the only time you see the Lord's provision is in those places. So tell somebody, even if it's that friend or maybe brother or sister, or cousin or so, somebody you're on the phone with and you know, I've wanted to talk to him for a long time, just open your mouth and tell them. And then just see what happens. I promise you, it will probably go different than what you think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for courage. And a willingness to just open our mouths and share. And that you will fill us. We know that your spirit dwells within us. We know that. We know that in our heads. But I pray that when that moment comes, you will poke us and say, this is the time that we might open our mouth and speak, and that your words will fill us that we'll say exactly what needs to be said. And then afterwards, when we're tossing over all the words that we said and maybe what we should have said and what we feel like it could have been better, that we'll just be reminded in that moment we said everything that we could and knew to say at the time because you filled us. And then I pray that you would work on the hearts of the ones that we speak to. That we might see fruit of them coming to know Christ, and then we might think back on the things that we said and go, what I said didn't produce that. That had to be a work of the Lord that did that. That in, in in every way we might be encouraged by your help and your guidance of us, and also convinced that it wasn't by our power or might that it happened. So I pray that you would do that in and through our church, and that we would be bold And that every space in our pews would be a challenge to us personally to talk to somebody about Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.